Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of China's news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, mobile phone app, and the website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today, we are coming to you from Auckland in New Zealand. We're delighted to be hosted at the studios of Podcasts NZ, the premier podcast network in New Zealand. Thanks very much to Paul Spain for hooking us up. I am Jeremy Goldcorn, joined as usual by Kaiser Gore, who is no longer in charge of suppressing barbarian lies for Baidu, but now living large in North Carolina. Well, I'm still suppressing barbarian lies, just not the ones that are being told about Baidu. And I'm doing it here in Chapel Hill and maybe focusing a little more on the lies told about Hillary Clinton, but... So this year is the 50th anniversary of what is usually defined as the start of the Cultural Revolution. While most histories of that period focus on Red Guard violence, people being imprisoned in cow sheds and other acts of terror, our guest today has written a book that looks at the cultural scene during the Cultural Revolution, examining a large number of new operas, plays, films and artworks that were produced during those tumultuous years. We're joined today by Paul Clark, who's a pioneer in the academic study of Chinese films. After completing a master's degree in New Zealand Maori history, he was one of the first three New Zealand students to go to Beijing on official exchanges for nearly two years of study. His Harvard PhD thesis was on the Chinese film industry from 1949 to 83. He's published books on Maori history, Chinese cinema, a cultural history of the Cultural Revolution, and on Chinese youth culture from 1968 to 2008. His current project is on changing leisure, leisure spaces in Beijing since 1949. Welcome to Seneca, Paul. Thank you. Nice to be here. <clears throat> Can I ask, to kick off the conversation, what drew you to the subject of the culture of the Cultural Revolution? Well, it was a way to make sense, perhaps, of the two years I'd spent in the final two years of the Cultural Revolution, as it turned out. I went to Beijing in 1974 to study Chinese, and in those two years had a kind of interesting experience. Life was dull in China for two years, but also rather intriguing, because in my second year in particular, I was in a class in the history department at Peking University, and our class was unique in being a combination of Chinese students and foreign students. And so we had 20 worker, peasant, soldier students uh, selected from their work units and the army and so on, alongside 25 or so foreign students. And we studied together, we uh, shared dorm space together, and did all sorts of things together. And so that insight that I'd gained in that year at Beida in 75, 76, 
got me thinking about how to better understand ordinary experience of ordinary people in China under Mao. And that drove me first to study Chinese film as a way of getting at popular attitudes and what the party thought were popular attitudes and tastes and what real audiences did with films and made use of films for their own ends. And out of that grew an interest in broadening my studies of Chinese culture to include other areas, and to focus particularly on the, that 10-year period of the Cultural Revolution. Huh. So there certainly was a divide between how ordinary people actually consumed culture and the culture that was put forth. So let's, let's talk about that first, the, the, the second part of that, what the actual official culture was. I want our listeners to, to, um, to, to be helped in their understanding of what the actual cultural or aesthetic ideals of the Cultural Revolution actually were. I mean, what were the people who were charged with creating a new revolutionary and proletarian culture actually drawing on? I mean, was it Soviet socialist realism? I mean, we were deep into the Sino-Soviet split at that time, so maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was, what, something independent of Soviet influence, something distinctly Chinese. But, you know, again, the Cultural Revolution was supposed to be all about the repudiation of of what came before. And uh, so it was traditional art also sort of foreclosed to them, and obviously the decadent art of the West was. So what was culture supposed to be officially? Um, well, at the center of, of Cultural Revolution culture were eight so-called model works, five operas, uh, two ballets, and a symphony. Now, ballets and symphony are obviously imported genres from, from outside of China. Uh, mm -hmm. But the effort with the two ballets, for example, was to combine uh, Soviet-style or, or Russian-style ballet with the movement traditions of, of China, martial arts, ah, peasant right. dance, and so forth. Likewise, the five so-called model operas were all an updating of a quite old, several centuries old, uh, Peking opera form. And so while... There was a repudiation of old ideas, old habits, old values, and tradition in general, supposedly, in the Cultural Revolution. At its core was a reworking of traditional performing arts. Hmm. Hmm. And did that uh, come along with a uh, attempt to unify and integrate the different regional art forms? Uh, essentially not. Uh, the people in charge of culture chose Peking opera, or Beijing opera, if you prefer, um, as the sort of national form. It had become that way, I guess, in the 20th century, being you know, associated with the capital, at least the capital after 1949. And there was an effort after the Peking opera modern forms had been established and worked on very carefully over more than a decade, in fact, after that new modern version of Peking opera was established, then people turned to modernizing the regional opera forms based on inspiration from what had been done with Peking opera. So you see that there are these five uh, Peking operas. Mm -hmm. we're, we're familiar with many of them, of course. You had your Red Detachment of Women and your Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually get the ballets and the operas confused. Yes, myself. Red Detachment is, is first That's a ballet. A ballet right. uh, it became That's an opera ballet. as well, of course. Um, uh, uh, but um, I, I guess I'm curious, there there was art beyond that, of course. I mean, you had film, of course, you, which is something that you look at quite a bit. Also painting, you know, we have the poster art and things like that, which I think many people are really 
familiar with, mm-hmm. and you you have that sort of revival of, of that peasant painting. I think that was that became really really popular. That was sort of deliberately free of any perspective or or three dimensionality to it. Mm-hmm. It was celebration of really simple primary colors mm-hmm. and really kind of flat renditions of things. Uh, is that something you were looking at too when uh, you were looking at culture? I look at everything. Um, you know, there's a paragraph uh, in the book okay. on acrobats, I think, and a couple of paragraphs on architecture. Oh, wow. But yeah. um, before we go further, we should note that the 10-year period from 66 to 76 isn't, you know, one period. It should be, we should acknowledge the different phases of the Cultural Revolution decade. Mm, yeah. Um, the mod- the model works, the model operas, the model ballets, and so on, were paramount in the early years, 66, state of 69, 70. After 1971 into 72, then there was a much greater widening of the possibilities. And that's when uh, filmmaking resumed. Chinese filmmaking had essentially closed down, apart from documentary films of Chairman Mao and a few other documentaries, from about 1966 through to 1972 or 71. People had been working in the studios on film adaptations of these uh, central model works to make perfected versions of the models that could be more easily seen by a, a mass audience than live performances. But the history of filmmaking in the Cultural Revolution is part of this phasing of different efforts and Regular feature films only resume uh, being made in about 1972-73. So different eras, different years in that 10-year period need to be differentiated from each other. It's not one big blob. And um, that could perhaps lead us into a discussion of uh, how uh, film during the Cultural Revolution affected uh, the fifth-generation filmmakers like Zhang Yimou and Chiang Kai-go, who really took Chinese film to the international stage in the late 20th century. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they were both born in the, in the cultural, or they grew up during they, the cultural they, they grew up. So. They were born in the early 50s uh, and right. grew up uh, exposed to films um, of a certain kind, of course, the new-style Chinese film that was um, so-called socialist realist, that was sending very clear messages to audiences. And then in the Cultural Revolution, there was a dearth of films available to Chinese audiences. People like Chiang Kai-go, Zhang Yimou, and other young people who had plenty of spare time because high schooling became a little patchy, even closed down for a a time. (laughs) But one way of seeing films was to go and participate in criticism sessions of films, films that had been banned and the usual statement is that all film, Chinese films were banned in 1966. That's a little misleading. Uh, there were a few films that were shown over and over and over again. But if you wanted to see an old film that you remembered from the 50s or early 60s that you liked, it might, if you were lucky enough, be subject to some sort of public <laughs> criticism session. And so a screening could uh, attract a wide, a big audience anxious to see this film again and then go through the motions of mouthing the the criticisms that um, had been officially um, set out against this this evil work. <laughs> kind of like the young men who may wish to wa- work in Office of Censoring Pornography. <laughs> <laughs> as, as I think, yes, I think a similar driver. But what it meant, I think, for growing up in the 50s and 60s with film as the most important 
mass medium in China, really, and the most effective in conveying propaganda messages. And then in the Cultural Revolution, making a real effort to see films, the few films that might be available to them, I think this this drove home to people like Chen Kaige, who, of course, had grown up in a film studio anyway, but also to Zhang Yimou and their classmates, the eventual classmates, that film was really powerful and could be really powerful. And so they became dedicated to the notion of using film to present their new thinking, thinking that had emerged out of their particular experiences in the Cultural Revolution. Um, but that, of course, is art as response to the, the tra- traumatic experience of the Cultural Revolution itself. And so many of the themes, whether they are, in fact, historically set in the Cultural Revolution, are are obviously about the experience of, of that time from both these filmmakers, from many of their earlier works. Uh, yes, that's, that's certainly true. That's true. Uh, but what about what about film during the Cultural Revolution? I mean, I had my first exposure to Chinese film probably in you know the same time that you were studying in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, my father had traveled to China and came back with a lot of films. I mean, you know, many canisters of film that he'd, he'd show, and somehow he, he was looped into a distribution of mainland film that he would show at the local university where we lived in upstate New York. And so I saw some of this stuff, and you know, it, frankly, I, I, I found it just execrable. <laughs> was there anything of value produced during that time, except as kitsch or nostalgia or, or an object of ridicule? I think the most valuable were probably the celluloid adaptations of those uh, eight model works, the the uh, model operas and ballets, right. because so much effort went to, went into making them absolutely perfect. And there are funny stories about Madame Mao Jiangqing, who was supposedly in charge of the whole enterprise, though that is questionable. Madame Mao objecting to the particular shade of red on the scarf of one of the central characters in, in an opera, and so the entire film had to be reshot. And there were jokes about oh how God. the projectionist hadn't properly cleaned the, the, the glass window in front of their, their projector, and that was the problem, and so forth. But of the feature films made after about 1973-74, there are, they're of interest both as kitsch, but also because of their relationships with various political waves, factional uh, disputes at the top of the, the Communist Party. But they also kept filmmakers practicing their art, even if it was to uh, rather dull or distorted ends. And that, so that set up, I think, the, those filmmakers to then, once the Cultural Revolution had ended and things were, were opened up somewhat more by the late 1970s, there was a great flourishing of films, feature films, essentially about the Cultural Revolution experience, looking back at the, the trauma. I can tell you one story about um, one of these these films made in 75, I guess, which is a film that I think has been distributed by the one of the Communist Parties of the United States, uh, Breaking with Old Ideas. Julia. Oh, I remember that one, yeah, um, Breaking with Old Ideas. Yes. Uh, it used to be available at various sort of little bookstores in obscure parts of the U.S. Um, Breaking with Old Ideas had its world premiere on a basketball court in February 1976 at Peking University. I wasn't there. I was sitting in my dorm room keeping warm. But my roommate, my classmate, and a political instructor in the People's Liberation Army artillery was obliged to go to the world premiere of Breaking with Old Ideas in February. 
Now, think February in Beijing. Not exactly an shivering as an ideal <laughs> time to be sitting on a little folding stool on a basketball court outdoors watching a movie, even if it is the world premiere. And I remember my roommate coming back to our dorm room and muttering bitterly about what a dreadful damn film that was and what a waste of time and how <laughs> bloody cold he was. And you know, that was just a, you know, a, a typical, typical example of the, the, the disjunction between what my roommate would be saying at political meetings and so on and, and on public occasions, as it were, in our class and what he really thought uh, when he came back frozen from, from this film premiere. I can imagine. Now, you, you mentioned Mao's widow or his wife, um, Jiang Qing, and the role that she supposedly played in a lot of this cultural production. I mean, I've come across in, in my travels all sorts of references to, I mean, I, I've, I've heard stories about her. Uh, Jeremy, were you there when we, we talked to Tsai Jingdong? He was talking about how uh, she, he had, she had extirpated, she didn't like the tuba, so they had to rewrite the entire Yellow River uh, cantata or to get rid of the tuba yeah micro managing all kinds of things yeah right but was she really that that central to cultural production um, paul there are examples of her so-called micromanagement uh scattered all through the sources but a lot of those sources of course are from post 1976 uh, right and after the, her arrest as part of the Gang of Four, and they're tinged with you know, considerable bitterness and nastiness and, frankly, misogyny. So I've always treated her role with a degree of skepticism. And I see. But also, we should remember that Jiang Qing was an experienced film and stage actress. So why shouldn't she be able to make a suggestion about the, the impact of a particular movement or... or, or, or placing of, of characters on a stage, for example, when she went to see a, a preview or a, a work-in-progress uh, version of one of the operas. It was a natural for her. She knew what worked on stage or before an audience. I mean, her own performances at, at rallies during the Cultural Revolution are, are wonderful um, expressions, I think, of her ability to perform to a, a, a big audience, at least judging from photographs and some film material on her. And how different do you think things would have been if she wasn't around? Uh, what an interesting question. Um, I think the effort associated with those model works, which I argue was an effort to modernize Chinese culture, or to continue a process of the modernization of Chinese culture that had begun you know, before the 20th century and continued right through the 20th century, I think that would have happened anyway without her. She was able to, I think, provide the resources needed for the, that effort to become even greater and more central in cultural production during that, those 10 years. But I think it would have happened without her anyway. Opera performers and others had try, been trying to modernize Peking opera since at least the 1910s, with various degrees of success. What the Cultural Revolution and Jiang Qing's political position enabled these people who wanted to modernize the opera to do was to have access to broadest possible range of expertise from film directors, uh, film makeup artists, film lighting specialists, and others, and bring that kind of modern approach to 
a performing art to the opera stage. Why was dance so central to the art of the Cultural Revolution? I'm I'm curious. I mean, because it just doesn't seem like it was such an exalted art form either in traditional China or I mean, are you suggesting that it's mainly because of uh, the Soviet prowess in ballet that that it became so influential? I think it's something to do with the Soviet Union and China's rivalry mm. with the Soviet Union, an effort perhaps to show that Chinese could create their own version of ballet and do it just as uh. well, if not better, than the Swan Lakes and Giselles of this world. The Red Detachment of Women and the, the white-haired, girl. white-haired Girl are, in ballet terms, really interesting works, which, as I said before, combine Chinese movement traditions with classical ballet in new and interesting ways, including, of course, they they include, of course, songs, which did not occur in, in Soviet ballet, for example. When you watch this, when you when you consume this kind of, of, of stuff, is, is it possible for you to see beyond the heavy-handed ideological layer? Are you able to, to appreciate it as art? I mean, that's, that's the, 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 the sticking point for me. I, I don't think I've ever even thought about the technical merits of it just because I have such trouble swallowing the the ideological content. I think I can, and I think Chinese audiences also could see beyond the ideology. The whole attraction of traditional Chinese opera of various sorts, regional and or Peking, is to see perfection, to see the moment of performance on the stage. The stories are utterly familiar. The characters are utterly familiar. And so you don't need character growth or development. What you want to see is that particular performer at that mm. moment presenting. And so audiences were really attracted to the, the, the quality of the singing and the, the, the design, the direction and so on of these operas because it was perfect performance at the moment. And you could appreciate that, I think, and maybe try to ignore or blot out the political messages and the heavy-handedness of, of the propaganda. And how has it changed now? You know, How do you see contemporary traditional Chinese theatre? Traditional Chinese theatre has been dying since the end of the Cultural Revolution, I think. Um, the, the efforts have continued to modernise opera, but they've involved sort of strange... Um, insertions of neon lighting and and uh, the strobe and and uh, electronic music and and or electronic organs and other things in the music in a in a much less organized or much less i think accomplished or thoughtful way trying to jazz it up as it were for a rapidly diminishing decreasing audience i mean if you go to see uh peking opera today in China, the audience will consist of two groups of people, foreign tourists bust in, and um, increasingly elderly audiences who are more and more confused, perhaps, by the, the efforts to jazz it up for the foreigners. So do you see any strands of continuity between traditional Chinese culture performing arts and what is happening now in the age of WeChat and on-demand and, and, and if there was a disruption, do you think that disruption was in part because of the Cultural Revolution? These are difficult questions because I don't know enough about what has happened to these traditional arts since 1976. But these arts have enough basis, I think, in Chinese life 
to continue in some form or other to be reworked by, by innovators and, and people experimenting. All good art, all traditional art, should be subject to this kind of innovation and experimentation. And that's true in China, I think, as much as anywhere in the world. But you seem to take issue with the kind of hybridity that's happening, the kind of innovation or experimentation, uh -huh. the, the disco strobe lights and the the electronic well, music. That's what I've been exposed to in, in a couple of unfortunate experiences in the, in the 1980s accompanying uh, tour groups or journalists around China. But, well, the whole 1980s was an unfortunate experience. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except for 1988. Um, but, right. but, uh, 88 was terrific. 88 was a great year. Um, I, I think um, there are thoughtful efforts to rework these traditional arts uh, in China going on now. Mm -hmm. And you know the internet and 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 um, its um, various forms does allow interesting experiments to reach some sort of audience who might appreciate it, and you know with luck, things that are really worthwhile will gain more traction and and show a way forward. You you actually show a, a surprising and I suppose quite admirable sympathy for uh, the cultural workers of that time, I mean, working in the face of tremendous adversity and under a lot of constraint. Um, let's talk about architecture. In your book, you know, you talk about architects working with concrete and, and expressing in that medium a, quote, you're a proud determination to be both modern, but also use traditional Chinese aesthetics. So talk a little bit about that. Unpack that a bit. What, what are some of the buildings you have in mind that you think maybe showcase this aesthetic at work? or this combination of aesthetics? Take, for example, the Hangzhou Airport, okay. which I um, happened to um, spend a couple of hours in between uh, Beijing and Guangzhou in 1973 on my first visit to China. Um, the Hangzhou Airport could be compared with any airport built in the early 1970s anywhere in the world. It was clearly inspired by an effort to show that a Chinese architect or group of Chinese architects could design something that was of international standard and international taste without, uh, in that case, um, seeking to make it seem Chinese by adding a funny hat or or a, a roof line that, that echoed something that <laughs> the was deemed, of deemed to yeah. be Chinese. Chang'an Avenue now, in the 90s, you know, right? <laughs> indeed, in the 80s and 90s, all over Beijing and Shanghai and elsewhere, um, these, these funny hats were put on buildings in an effort to make things look Chinese. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the thoughtful, yeah. The, the thoughtfulness of, of these architects and these artists or the cultural workers working in all sorts of genres in trying to take traditional ideas and aesthetics and combine it with a modern sensibility in the teeth of quite massive political restriction and, and concerns about whether things should be allowed or not, I think is, is, is admirable. These people continued to work in their chosen fields as best they could. And that is you know, almost heroic. Before we get on to our recommendations uh, uh, section, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your work on leisure spaces in Beijing. And how, I, I know it's not complete, but uh, what are you investigating? How leisure spaces have been changing since 1949? What that means to the people who live there? Well, again, it's inspired by this this effort that I've I've 
always felt to try and understand ordinary life in China. And whereas my previous three books on China have been, uh, four, I think, have been nationwide, Beijing is the place I know best in, in, in China, um, although Beijing keeps changing and anything beyond the third ring road is, is, is very unfamiliar to me, but that may be true of a lot of uh, our listeners. But finding out how ordinary Beijingers made use of urban spaces that had been designed for them is, is I think, a way of, again, getting at popular attitudes, popular behaviors beyond the official. And it's inspired in part by standing in Tiananmen Square in late May 1989, watching the a certain statue being erected at the top of the square in front of um, Tiananmen. And that statue was put up in front of a crowd of probably several hundred thousand people. I was there standing as one of those people. I was there too. Uh, watching this on tippy toes. And as it was being put up, I turned to a total stranger beside me and said, what does this mean to you? And he said, that's our statue in our square. And that stuck with me, that the excitement was not, you know, this is a representation of democracy or, or, or of ideals that we want to, want to promote, but this is our chance to make our mark in this space. So that got me interested in leisure spaces in Beijing and how people have used leisure space for their own purposes, not in terms of resistance um, necessarily, but at least in ways that had meaning for them rather than in ways dictated or shaped by what officials wanted them to use how officials wanted them to use this space. Interesting. And so I'm I had something a lot more politically innocent in mind as you were describing your work. Uh, I rode the subway home from work every day for the last you know five or six years uh, and got off at, at Dungjerman Station. And at Dungjerman Station, you know, they've got this gigantic new, new, new tra- transport center. Nowadays, in the evenings, just after dark, uh, there are five or six groups of hacky sack players of jianzi of all different ages i mean these are people from their teens into their well into their 60s and 70s in these little uh groups of i don't know i don't know how they know each other i i I was always wanting to talk to them and, and find out how this particular constellation of people came together and they were amazingly good i mean they were these are people who would just go out of their way to do those behind the back kicks and these really fancy moves and nothing was just an easy you know uh, delivery from you know the ankle of your right foot crooked up it was just uh, astonishing and I, I would I would it would please me so just just to to get off after this you know incredibly crowded subway ride and just watch these people doing this it was it's delightful yeah. and that when you were talking and, about use of leisure spaces that's that's exactly right. what I had in mind and not dancing grannies <laughs> exactly it, I mean all sorts of people all sorts of ages making use of public spaces for their own entertainment and enjoyment and if other people want to watch often that's that's very welcome as dancing grannies uh, like to be watched, as we know. It's funny to watch um, watch the, the different fads. I mean, there used to be the guys who would, you know, fly their birds in front of Gongti, and now it's bullwhip crackers. For some reason, all these people go out there with these enormous bullwhips and just 
crack them. I mean, for, for you know the effect for the, the, the noise. Apparently, it's yeah. quite a workout. I mean, these guys have a lot oh. of upper arm strength. It looks like, but oh. I don't know where one even goes and buys a bull whip in Beijing. But uh, they all get the other. Well, I'm sure them. there are certain shops somewhere that you could apply it. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm in, the, in this uh, eventual book. I'm, I'm tracing how leisure leisure has changed in Beijing since 1949. I mean, in the 50s and early 60s, and through the Cultural Revolution to a degree, people were organized. It was jiti huodong, collective activity. Um, organized to go to the public park to do things, to exercise or play sport or, or read um, posters and placards uh, about the, the current um, uh, hygiene campaign or whatever it was. Moving from that kind of collective leisure through to now, you get in your own car and you drive to a shopping mall and go shopping as leisure. And so that shift is quite remarkable over 60-something years, and, and that's what I hope to trace. That sounds fascinating. And when do you anticipate finishing this book? I've promised myself that by the end of next year, I will have submitted it to a publisher. Ah, I look forward to it. That looks really, that sounds terrific. So Jeremy, should we uh, move on to recommendations? Let's do that indeed. Oh, before we do, let's remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. So uh, on to recommendations. And Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, I, I have a, a a local one for New Zealand. I just got back from a few days in Queenstown with my family, oh, nice. and it is just one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. So you should get a chance to go. Um, and you can get good Chinese food all over New Zealand, which is very nice. Uh, that is a reason to go. <laughs> That's it, Queenstown. I mean, what specifically That's about it. Change? It's the whole... I mean, what, what, what's, the whole area. Yeah, okay. Drive around it, walk up mountains, go skiing, lie on your back staring at the sky. It's all good. And Paul, what do you have for us this week? Um, can I go back to 1988? Absolutely. wonderful year. It was. That year of possi- possibilities. And for me, 1988 is epitomized by one film, Red Sorghum, Johnny ah, Moore's yes, directoral, yes. directoral debut. I think it's a terrific film with all sorts of layers to it. And it was a film that broke out of the sort of art house for that generation of filmmakers. Uh, it was immensely popular and is immensely interesting to look at the various layers within it and what it's really saying. Uh, a film well worth digging up again and watching again. I am so saddened by the fact that his n- n- his current endeavor is a Matt Damon vehicle about fantastic monsters attacking the Great Wall. Uh, Jesus, it's... it's I I don't have much hope for it. No, no. I I hold out almost none. All right, I'm going to wrap up here with my recommendation. Great recommendation, by the way. I mean, the whole early oeuvre of of Zhang Yimou is just absolutely worth seeing. It's great stuff. My uh, recommendation is a book that uh, a friend of mine named Tanner Greer recommended. Uh, Tanner is actually a Republican and one of those rare smart ones <laughs> who uh, takes a real keen interest in uh, in military affairs in China. But uh, this was a very American domestic politics recommendation. Uh, he recommended actually an interview with an author, a new author by the name of J.D. Vance, who's just written a book called Hillbilly Elegy, which I am now uh, about two-thirds of the way through. 
and uh, and finding very very compelling reading. Uh, it's a, written by it's a memoir written by a guy in his early thirties, which sounds just really kind of inexcusable, but. He is a former Marine and is a, a graduate of an Ivy League law school. And he grew up as a, a truly impoverished hillbilly. I mean, he uses the word hillbilly with no embarrassment uh, in eastern Kentucky and then in southern Ohio up the hillbilly highway from, from where he grew up. And it's really it's interesting. You know, he's he, the whole time, I and mean, he makes it explicit later, but he's talking about his, his childhood in terms which you could easily transpose into the key of African American, you know, facing the same sorts of problems and, you know, wrestling with the same sorts of, 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 of issues as to whether these are inherently structural or whether they are cultural problems. And it's, it's something that I think in this election year, everyone needs to, to, to read to better understand uh, the inchoate uh, anger from working class whites in greater Appalachia. Uh, this is a very good book. Uh, he's a quite gifted writer, and he's very thoughtful. Even though uh, his political conclusions might be different from mine, I think it's it's very worth reading to understand. Jeremy, any interest in that book? I mean, you're living in Tennessee. Sounds great. Yeah, I'd like to read it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Just I'll, my I'll near read. neighbors. I'd also like to not forget to thank once again uh, Paul Spain and Podcast NZ for hosting us at their lovely Auckland studio. Yeah, um, thanks very much. So they run a whole suite of podcasts about business, technology, uh, and other things based in New Zealand, but expanding out towards the rest of the globe. So check them out. I shall. And uh, thanks, Paul. That was a fascinating conversation. Uh, oh, really looking thank, forward thank to it. Thank you, Kaiser, for, for, your, for your interest. Um, Look forward to meeting you someday. I hope so. We will. I'm sure we will. The world is small, and I'm in Beijing frequently. So, Fair enough. Okay. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guomi and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page and give us a like at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.